0: My name is Carol Siobhan, and you're listening to Head to Toe.
1: My name is Kamala and you're listening to Head to Toe.
0: My name is Mary and
2: you're
3: listening to Head to Toe. This is JP Tyler, and you are listening to Head to Toe.
4: And I'm your podcast host, Marie McMillan, and you are listening to Head to Toe. Welcome to the sixth and final episode of the year. We made it 2016. We had all sorts of ups and downs. Let's forget about the downs. The ups for me included getting engaged to the most amazing dude on the planet, seeing Hamlet at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival this summer, and deciding last January to launch this other quirky part of my professional life. Yeah. I got online and I bought some audio equipment, shipped it to my house, and opened it up and said, yeah, I'm really going to do this. It hasn't exactly been easy starting a writing and podcast career. It's been difficult in a few ways, but... I'm very excited to keep this thing going and I'm especially excited about today's episode. I get to hear stories from four amazing individuals who work in the trenches of healthcare. Their stories about you, the stories about patients, their stories about the struggle of caring and not caring. They're different, full of feeling, some of it nerdy, some of it funny, a lot of it emotional. So, without further delay, I give you Best Stories of 2016.
0: Hi, my name is Carol Siobhan, and I'm a registered nurse, and this is my story. I want to talk about the reason I left bedside nursing and tried to find something else. A couple patients tipped me over the edge. One was Mr. J. He was a frequent flyer, came to our floor a lot, very demanding. Ugh. And on my fifth peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I was making him, I licked the bread and put the peanut butter on, and then I realized I need to get out of the bedside.
4: (laughs) Did he eat the sandwich? Yes.
0: (laughs) I think he even said
4: thank you. (laughs) After the fifth sandwich.
0: Yes. You had to bribe him with food so he would let you take his vitals or let you do blood draws or start an IV Mm -hmm. putting ice cream oh when I was um working as a charge nurse um we had a patient that needed one-to-one care because his head wasn't right um he kept falling and the CNA that was supposed to be scheduled to sit with them hadn't shown up yet so I said I'll do it so I went in the room and um he wanted to get out of bed and he's a huge fall risk, and he'd fallen several times before. So I helped him get out of bed and helped him to the sink, and he swung at me, but I stepped back just in time, and he fell forward and landed on the floor (laughs) and was like a little turtle trying to get up, and I had nothing in me that felt sorry for him or that wanted to help him. There was nothing empty. And he was calling me horrible names, and I could not help him. And that's another
4: time I realized I needed to get off of the bedside. <laughs> How did your transition out of bedside care go? Oh, I um,
0: was um, interested in picking up some shifts in an outpatient setting, and I didn't think I could do it. And one of my coworkers worked down there, and they said, Oh, it's easy. We call it the princess shift. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And I did it, and I said, i got to move down here. This is a beautiful place, one-to-one patient care lots of downtime sitting yes sitting and charting it's beautiful
4: did you notice um all the that your compassion came back yes mm-hmm. definitely what is uh your goal for 2017 for yourself mm. oh just take care try to
0: just be better and um in one of your podcasts i heard one of the nurses say. That we have to realize that we have to thank ourselves. We can't wait for somebody else to thank us. You have to walk outside the door patting yourself on the back. I mean, sure, patients will say it, but it's kind of, you have to know within that, yeah, you're doing a good job, even though you didn't get all your charting
2: done.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I <laughs> right? agree. I think that was very poignant of yeah. of Kathy. Mm-hmm. That was episode two, by the way, for those of you listening. Go check it out. Um, Thank you so much for sharing with me, Carol, your stories. Ready? Yeah,
1: I'm ready. So my name's Kamala, and I'm a registered nurse, and I've been a registered nurse since 2007. I left bedside nursing uh, two years ago. I decided I'd try something different. I went into nurse case management. I thought I would branch out and expand on what I was learning getting my master's degree. And so, nurse case management involves helping patients that are getting ready to leave the hospital. They need need a place to stay for recovery, they've broken a hip, they need to go somewhere, they need medications, their insurance is out, just different things that just helps discharging patients. And so I had been doing this job for about a year and a half, and I was kind of coming to terms with the fact that maybe this wasn't necessarily the most satisfying aspect of nursing, but um, I still got to do patient care. I still got to work with incredible nurses on the floor, incredible doctors, and I was just, I saw myself as a helper, an assistant. Sometimes I referred to it as planning a party for the patient that was discharging. Anyhow, so I've been doing my job. It was, uh, we we're a little bit understaffed where I worked, and there's just always something to do. You're on the phone half the day, and everybody wants you. Every patient that you need to see wants you. Every nurse that's involved with that patient wants to see you. Every doctor wants to see you. Everybody wants something from you. And sometimes, when especially when you're short staffed, you feel like you cannot help anybody or everybody the way you want to or are supposed to. And unfortunately, part of that process is that you sometimes get a little bit more jaded about it. And you just kind of go, okay, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. So I came in on a very busy day one day. Uh, this was a story that reminded me exactly why I went into nursing. And so we were really busy, and I had a coworker. We were There's three of us. And we were supposed to go see this, somebody was supposed to see this patient. They were on our list. And so I walked into this room and I met this patient and her family, a husband, a daughter. I had the most profound reminder of exactly why I became a nurse. And so I got to spend about three and a half days with this patient and her family member. She had a terminal diagnosis. It was unexpected and new. And it was a really emotionally draining time for the family and for me because I got to be part of it. So one of the simplest things I could do was the patient loved the hospital pillows that she was laying on. She said they were the best pillows ever. And her daughter asked me, can you get me some of those pillows? And so I said, well, sure, I'm sure I can. Shouldn't be a problem. So I had to make contact with the manager of the unit. And I said, is there any way I could get some fresh pillows for this patient? And she said, go ahead, find out from, you know, our supply department. Find out. Just let me know. And I called down to the supply guy. And he said, well, how many do you want? I mean, these pillows cost me 2 bucks each. You can get all the pillows you want. And so I said, I need like five or six maybe. just like to send them home for this patient. And he said, I'm going to give you a box. Just to make sure with the manager. So like that box of pillows costs like $48 out of her total budget. And so I got this woman a box of pillows. I brought them into the room. And... For to tell the patient, like here's the pillows, and that I hadn't scheduled the delivery of a bed hospital bed to her home, and I can't even explain to you the gratitude that was expressed in that moment, so you know, I went about my day doing something I initially put off seeing this person. And I was just, you know, busy and overwhelmed. And she changed my life again in just those first two days with her. So I organized her bed delivery. I got her the pillows. I got to spend hours with her daughter talking and crying and just getting to know the patient and her family. And so on the final day, the day before the patient was going to leave, I went in to say goodbye and her family wasn't there right then and she was laying in her bed and we were talking and she was talking to me about her daughters and her all the worries she had about her daughter and she's worried about her daughter crying and she didn't want to see her crying and my patient was originally from mainland China and she'd been in the states for many years and so she told me she used to tell her daughter this story It was a song about, or story or song, it was about goodbyes. And she would sing to her daughter in Chinese. And it was a story about, I think, young lovers that had to say bye forever. And she told me she had sang it to her daughter that morning. And so she decided to sing the song to me. And she explained it to me, and we talked a little more, and she sang the song, and we talked and we held hands, and she sang a little bit more, and she was waving her hand, saying goodbye with a gesture, singing in Chinese to me. And so it was time for me to leave, and this patient, who was racked by pain, and the both of us were crying... She said, I'm going to walk you to the door because that's, I want to see you out of here because I was going to be going away for my weekend. I helped this woman stand up and she gave me a hug and then she started singing to me in Chinese with tears streaming down her eyes. Tears were streaming down my eyes. And she waved to me as she walked me to the door and she sang this song of... Goodbye forever <sighs> So After a year Of doing a lot of paperwork And a lot of phone calls And waiting on hold And trying to arrange Just practical mundane Things for people That needed to leave the hospital This is a moment That touched my heart So that I remembered exactly why I went into this profession. Because I got to spend a few hours with this woman, her daughter, her husband. And the gratitude for the simplest task meant everything to me. And it's exactly what keeps me going in this profession. My professional goal is to take on and excel in my new position as an assistant nurse manager. And one of the transitions for me, leaving bedside care, there was a certain um, benefit in leaving behind patient care, but there's a certain disadvantage because I think you get isolated and you forget exactly why you do what you do. This event reminded me again But it also reminded me of some of the incredible nurses that I work with. I may be no longer helping take care of all these patients, but I get to take care of some of these nurses because this is an incredibly difficult and rewarding and sad and happy and funny and crazy job. And sometimes you know that you may not change everything, but if you can make a little bit of a difference in somebody's day whether it's the patients or those nurses you get to work with, it's amazing. One of the things about this event with this woman and all the contacts I had with her nurses on the floor was that I was reminded that nurses are my tribe. And sometimes you just need a reminder how you can make a difference in somebody's life just by ordering them a bed or getting them a box of pillows because that makes everything, that's their world.
2: Hi, my name is Mary. I'm a registered nurse in an ICU. And this is my story from 2016. It's actually different than other memorable patients for me in that I, um, it, I didn't identify with the patient in any way, maybe a little bit more with his mom and I felt like I really was highlighted in my nursing um, care that I gave as well as just the relationship I developed with him and his family. But it wasn't like this gory story that ICU nurses tend to remember. I walked in to report, and the patient has an arterial blood clot in his arm, and my first thought is uh, IV drug abuse because that is what an ICU nurse typically would think with something like that and, um, ends up, uh, that's not the case. This kid was a sophomore in college and he was, um, he played baseball and he played football and he had, um, an arterial clot in his ul- ulnar artery and, um, he thought he was going to lose his hand. So he had been recruited by the major league baseball teams and he also, had been recruited by his college to play football and baseball, but had decided just to go with baseball because of the opportunity to maybe do major leagues. Uh, I was able to talk to him kind of a little bit about this just because my uh, son plays baseball, so I could ask him some good questions. And I think that opened up a little line of communication between he and I. So he had been pitching. He had had Tommy John surgery uh, the previous year and was excited to be getting back to the team and playing and had been pitching and had noticed some numbness in his fingers and thought that maybe it was just related to his surgery. But then his pitch speed, which was quite high, he's a left-hander and he would pitch for about 92 miles per hour for a fastball, which is extremely high for a college player. And um, it dropped to 82. And that's when he went to go see his trainer at the college. And um, the trainer did the Allen's test, which is testing the um, pulses on both sides of the arm and making sure that he had good blood flow. And in fact, he had zero blood flow on one side. And so he went to the ER at his local hospital and they told him they were going to amputate his hand. Oh my God. He would never play again. So he called his mom and dad who came down, um, to where he was in college and they, they flew down and then they said, no, we're not going to amputate his hand. Let's take him somewhere else. So they brought him to our hospital, to our vascular team. Um, and I just feel like it was really serendipitous for him because he could have gone to any other hospital. And um, he came to us, and our vascular surgeon had seen this one time before. And it's a clot that happens in people who have, mostly athletes who have an overhand um, motion mm-hmm. in their arms. And so if they have a forceful o- overhead, overhand motion, they get this um, arterial compression syndrome. Oh. And it happens up kind of more in their axillary artery. Oh, wow. And so I learned a lot as a nurse that way. Wow. And um, he had this compression syndrome that developed these clots, so he did not have blood flow to his hand at all. And so he, by the time I got to him, he'd been to the cath lab and had um, was flat on his back with these arterial and venous sheaths with um, TPA and heparin for kind of this clot-busting medication to um, break up the clot. It was dark in his room. He was really quiet. He has this very diligent family, girlfriend, and sister, and mom that were kind of attending to his every need, mm-hmm. which um, for some nurses, that's um, a difficult family dynamic mm-hmm. to have. Because mm-hmm. um, you can never do anything
4: right sometimes. Cause you, you
2: feel as a nurse, you feel like you can't do the right thing. Yeah. But I had the opportunity to really just develop this rapport with them and to talk to them about what was going on. And the fact that I could pull up the images and revisit what the the surgeon had already talked to them about um helps and eventually they were able to leave and this is the reason um the family you the mean. family was able to leave right. this is the reason I think this story sticks with me is this family I developed this trust they were able to leave and take care of themselves and each other and mm-hmm. I was able to sit with this kid and um and really talk to him and it ends up he he was scared and he was really painful it ends up you know 19 year old athletes need a ton of pain medication. (laughs) And so it was really painful and he um, was scared. And he just talked to me about how he didn't uh, love baseball anymore, how he loved playing as a kid. And now that it was, he said it was more fun when it wasn't business for him. And, but he was terrified of not playing because he thought he would disappoint his dad. Mm. And so I think as a nurse, I was able to really advocate for him as a um, for his pain medication and for just teaching him mm-hmm. um, but really my experience as a mother and maybe also as a nurse allowed me just to say you know your parents love you regardless and in the end they just want you to be happy so it was this time where we had like these 30 minutes and he just like spilled his guts to me and I think that's a privilege we have as bedside nurses and that patients can spill their guts to you and you can talk to them um so I was his nurse for three days and we talked a lot um as his family would come and go and on the third day I was able to get him out of bed for the first time oh
4: that's like the best feeling
2: and yeah so he was able to get out of bed and he was just so grateful and I didn't realize how tall he was he was like six four he was this tall kid and he you know was healthy and and so um he had received he had had blood return to his hand, and they got rid of the clot, and he actually needed to have a surgery to correct this compression on this um, axillary artery, and um, left the hospital.
4: On purpose. On purpose. (laughs) Um, He was was discharged (laughs) from the hospital.
2: And one of the reasons this, this case was so memorable for me was I was thinking last night, he... This wasn't a dramatic hospitalization, so it was for him, of course, but you know, nothing went wrong in the hospital. Nothing um, terrible happened. He didn't lose his hand. He had high function still. He had um, a really great surgeon who um, went out of his way to talk to the family. Um, as a nurse, I had great communication with the surgical team. It wasn't it wasn't a bad experience as a nurse and I think that's what we remember sometimes mm-hmm. this was a, a supremely good experience in that I could talk to him and I could visit with him and I could actually give really good care and assess the patient mm-hmm. in a way that um, I felt he was getting comprehensive care and I was really struck the fact by the fact that from start to finish this kid had good care his Surgical um, consult was good, and even before that, his um, team physician did the correct assessment to when he evaluated him to get him to get help right away. Yeah, that trainer, the, total props the trainer, to the trainer. Yeah, understand and and interestingly enough, that trainer identified that same problem in another picture Oh wow! Around the same time, because I think it was on his brain. Mm, mm-hmm. And even beyond that, <clears throat> he came to the patient came to our hospital. The surgeon took the time to call trainers and team physicians from other um, major league teams. So he called the San Francisco Giants surgeon and the New York Yankee surgeon and said, I have this kid and this is the problem. What did you do to solve the problems um, wow. documented on your team? And so he did all the right things to ass- assure that the patient could get what he needed. Um, and it just really occurs to me that we have that opportunity a lot in healthcare and I actually got to witness that and it mm-hmm. actually happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that that's something that, um, as an ICU nurse, we get really jaded toward the sure. healthcare and toward patients and toward all this. And this kid had everything fall right in line for him. Mm-hmm. And I was part of that. And I really liked that a lot. Beyond the fact that it's fascinating to see this like kind of rare disorder or or illness that comes in and to see it being treated correctly is really neat
4: that's really cool you had mentioned something about how you really connected with the family and was that just more like you were able to convince them to leave which is an art form in the ICU of like yes I will take care of your person
2: I think I connected with the family on a few ways one I tend to do really well with families at baseline Mm -hmm. and so it's easy for me to come in and kind of be a little more empathetic and and engage with families in a way that not all healthcare providers care to do um, after they've been around as long as I have. And mm-hmm. so uh, I think that that was good. I think they appreciated that I could ask them, him, the patient specifically, about his baseball career, and mm-hmm. I could ask the right questions, like what kind of pitch do you do? Mm-hmm. And I understood the difference between a changeup and a curveball and a fastball. and, mm-hmm. So big props to my son for that because I didn't care a bit about baseball before that. <laughs> um, so I think that helped. And I think it helps that um, I found out that his girlfriend was a nursing student. And so oh, I talked cool. to her about that and, you know, she kind of, and really, I, I think I sat down with his mom and I think as a mother, I'm able to identify with mothers more when I'm a nurse. And mm-hmm. it, um, that has changed the way I interact with mothers. And so I, you know just was able to tell her you know he's going to be fine and i we don't know what the outcome is of wow. his um his hospitalization will be but you know he's a healthy kid and yeah. and she was grateful for that and i think that it helped her that she heard me you know talking to the fish phys- physician mm-hmm. and calling and you know upping his pain medication doing all the things that nurses do mm-hmm. and i think the family paid attention to that and i think that's what allowed them to think oh i can leave my kid mm-hmm. here in this trauma center mm-hmm you know in an area of town they're not familiar with mm-hmm. and so they totally. they were able to leave and it was around they had other kids so they had other things they had to do and mm-hmm. so that helped and I I think that we do that a lot in in the hospital as nurses but we don't recognize how often we do it like mm-hmm. how often we really like the family is our patient also and we care for them in a way that they should be because we like to talk a lot about the annoying families but really most families are we really appreciate us Mm -hmm. as nurses so
4: we meet people on the worst day of their lives right and you have to how you can get easily jaded walking into that same emotional dynamic often kind of day in and day out and you have to find some resiliency with that and there's boundaries that come with that so i think you're right and that we're more prone to not experience those amazing things because we have to like we have to soldier on sometimes and it's it's harder to bring that barrier down and have those awesome moments with the mom or the girlfriend or the Yeah, I you think know, we filter daughter. that out for ourselves.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that is one thing that has changed with me as a nurse in the last few years especially is that I am, I think I'm more attentive to the family because I feel confident that the patient is going to be getting the best care they like I will always give the patient the best care. Mm-hmm. And so I'm able now to take a little time to understand the family in a different way and to be pay- more patient with them because it is their, nobody's on their best behavior when they're family members in the ICU. Mm-hmm. And I think it is our duty as healthcare providers to recognize that and to support them and to give people a little leeway in the way they interact with us. Mm-hmm. One thing that really struck me about that patient and that story is like normally the patient stories I receive, I remember like Mm -hmm. in my 18 years as a nurse Mm -hmm. I have maybe five patients that have stuck with me like truly stuck with me and all except this one have either died or have been such tragic stories that I learned like nursing care from them but I also learned like an emotional piece and Mm -hmm. this one I don't really feel like I learned any of it I feel like I just gave good care yeah it was interesting to me that that was the one that stuck with me this year versus you know other ones where right. I just like was my heart was torn out right you know and that's because yeah. that you didn't happen because those, those are visceral feelings right stick with you yeah <laughs> and this kid I remember because I um I identified with him and his family but I also was able to I felt like I had like really good um rapport with the physician at the time and mm-hmm. there's this like the whole package worked really well with that patient mm-hmm. I think to really identify what my next step as a healthcare provider is, I think that I have, I know I can always learn more and I I think I have not identified what I want to learn in 2017. And so that's over the next month, that's really a priority for me, like, do I feel like I need to learn more about cardiovascular care maybe you know or do i need to do i want to focus on another body system or do i want to think about the social responsibility of healthcare providers and how can i how can i um, improve my participation in the healthcare society i don't know what my goal for 2017 is i'm on a a little bit of a journey i think i'm am hitting close to 20 years as a nurse and i um a lot change has changed one thing I've tried to do this last few months is to talk to everybody I can mm-hmm. about what they do in healthcare, mm-hmm. nurses and physicians and dietitians and like really what they do mm-hmm. and what they love and what they hate about it. Because mm-hmm. I think I I'm can just going to put a mic on you. I and can ask you can different like, questions. <laughs> you will be like my field reporter, right? <laughs> <laughs>
4: this is Mary head to toe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just speaking the mic a little bit close. I'd nice. be happy to do so. What do you think sucks about healthcare? Already yeah. psycho. <laughs>
2: It's, it's, I have learned the better question to ask is what do you love about your job? Because Mm -hmm. people most of the time have one thing they love. Like you don't stay in healthcare if you really hate all of it. That is true. You know, like I have terrible years and I terrible days and terrible months, but I have, there's always a bright spot that I can think, oh, I love what I do. I love the patient care.
3: My name is JP Tyler. I am a nurse practitioner, and this is my story. I guess we can start with me in my patient's apartment, evaluating him for complaints of shortness of breath. Now the question is, how did I get here? I find myself in an environment as far removed from where I started my nursing career as possible. I've spent most of my years working in various ICUs or emergency departments. And now, here I am, working as a nurse practitioner and making house calls. Now, the ICU is one of the most dehumanizing environments one can imagine. You take a human being, strip them down, gown them in a hospital bed, multiple IVs, central line, NG tube, catheter, Multiple drips, infusions, an arterial line, continuous blood pressure monitoring, the sounds of the cardiac monitor, the pulse oximeter reading, a breathing tube, a ventilator, perhaps even a dialysis catheter with continuous renal replacement, and the interventions go on from there. An aortic balloon pump, an impellative device, an icy cath, a VDR a tracheostomy, a PA catheter, a chest tube, a drain to bulb suction, a biz monitor, paralytics, restraints. But no, that's the environment I left behind. And this patient who's struggling to breathe right now in his apartment, who's called on me to help him, that patient, it just so happens, is somebody I distinctly remember caring for in the confines of an ICU under much different circumstances. This guy, the EMS report showed, had been in his home surrounded by empty bottles of vodka, excrement everywhere. The place just thrashed. This guy was um, opiate addicted, status post, a botched hip surgery, and suffered from mental illness, In the ICU, he was an absolute terror. He was unmanageable. In severe alcohol withdrawal, he was shouting at nurses, insulting everyone, speaking in a very aggressive tone, attempting to hit and kick and bite, having to be in four-point restraints. I saw him at his worst. And then, fast forward a year, here I am in his home. A very pleasant gentleman looking to me to help him breathe more easily. Now, the great thing about this new job that I have is that it gives us the opportunity to intervene before all hell breaks loose. Now, if these patients, you know the ones I'm talking about, the ones with multiple comorbidities, so many things wrong with them. They're on 30 meds. They're so delicate that the slightest little thing could tip the scales and force them back into a hospital admission. If they were to show up to the ED on a good day, they could easily be admitted to the hospital. Invariably, they have some abnormality that would warrant further testing and investigation. Now this patient, he's having a COPD exacerbation, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and maybe something like a common cold something that would affect you or me, make us feel miserable. Maybe maybe we stay home a few days. Maybe we whine to our partner about our sniffles. But for someone with COPD, it could be a life-threatening illness. Early intervention is key, and without that, they could wind up in such dire straits as previously described in the ICU. Now, my current role isn't so glamorous, I, sure, in this instance, I might administer a NEB treatment. I might write for some prednisone. You know, I might spend some time with this patient. I might order a chest x-ray done right there in their home. Mobile diagnostics. If clinically warranted, maybe I order some antibiotics, empiric treatment of a possible superimposed bacterial infection, uh, a community-acquired pneumonia, but most of my job is pretty mundane. A lot of times, the most important interventions are the ones that are done well in advance of the potential crisis. Constipation, believe it or not, is one of the top five diagnoses for my patients that lands them in the hospital. It's COPD, CHF, UTI, dehydration, and constipation. I find that hard to fathom, that those, aside from COPD and CHF, are the things that land our patients in the hospital most, because those are fundamentally preventable. You know, a good bowel regimen, an early intervention for dysuria, where you do a quick dipstick of the urine and write for antibiotics. Dehydration. Close monitoring of the patient. So that, you know, when when they become ill, they're getting adequately hydrated. Their vitals are being checked at home. These patients are so fragile. And yet it takes this kind of work to keep them out of the hospital, to keep them home. This guy, who was at one time in such awful shape in the ICU, he's now well managed at home. It's night and day. And when he needs us, he calls on us. And not only that, we have nurses who call him on a regular basis to check in, check in with his health, with his mental health, see how he's doing. And if we think it's warranted, we go out and we see them. And the crazy thing is the economics of it all. It turns out that this incredibly inefficient model of care, of having nurse practitioners and doctors drive out to patients' homes to see the sickest of the sick, to provide preventative care, it's a net gain. Manage chronic illness at home. Be vigilant. And you reduce hospitalizations and ED visits, and the patient is happier and healthier, and they're receiving better care, and it places less burden on our healthcare system as a whole. Now, of course, I'm not saying it's easy. Managing these patients takes... A tremendous amount of well-coordinated and collaborative effort, including social work, nursing, community providers, and on-call providers to do it. But ultimately, it's worth it.
4: JP is right. It is worth it. It is a rarity that we feel like it is worth it, but that's one of my goals with doing this podcast, is to highlight how worth it working in healthcare is and what a worthy uphill battle it can be. I want to keep collecting all the hilarious, deep, earth-shattering, and mundane stories that are out there, and I bet you, listener, I bet you have one. 2017 will hopefully be full of new material, and as always, feel free to contact me via email, macmillanpages at gmail.com, or via my Facebook page, or... I got something new and exciting. Head to toe now has a listener feedback line. Call me, leave me a voicemail, your thoughts and comments on the show. Get your pens out, people, because here is the number. It is 503-512-0185. One more time, that's 503-512-0185. Otherwise, the podcast is free to listen on Podbean, SoundCloud, and iTunes. I want to thank one more time my guests carol kamala mary and jp you guys are the best thank you for contributing and thank all of you for listening i hope all of you have a safe and remarkable new Year's celebration i hope your 2017 is full of new awesomeness and worthy challenges and if you're coming to our house party tonight we could use ice and more champagne happy new year everybody take care